1: Welcome to Celtic Stuff Live on CLNS Radio, the leading online provider of audio and video coverage for Boston sports. I'm your host Justin, Poole, and alongside John Duke, and we've got the start of a very special off-season series for you. It is the first in an off-season interview series that, since it's the doldrums, since it's the downtime, we're gonna bring you the faces and the voices of Celtics coverage and talk a little bit about how they got to where they are in their careers, maybe some highlights. And really, John, this all came up uh, because I listened to Bobby Manning's Uh, podcast from last week with Chad Finn, and uh, if you don't know or you're not listening here on CLNS Radio, the Bobcast, he's only about six episodes in, but he's on his way to Syracuse University, and he's got his hands in a lot of different types of media, has been covering sports for about three years, writes for Celtics' blog, hosts post-game shows, and has the Bobcast here on CLNS Radio, but it's just at a point where he's beginning to look at at starting his career um, as he gets older and, and heads off to college, and he was asking Chad Finn about advice to somebody who is, you know, budding uh, or aspiring to cover uh, sports, and so I thought it was interesting that. You know, Chad Chad always is a great guest and he had some good answers, but I thought, you know, what a better way for our listeners to to uh enjoy the off season than to talk to some of our longtime hosts or guests of the show and get some insight into how their careers evolved and whatnot. So um kind of a nice way to fill the time, but you know training camp is gonna be coming up any minute now john it's gonna go fast
2: yeah it'll go fast you know and there's a lot of stuff that we just you know we've we've had a chance maybe to talk to these guys over the years and you and i have you know kind of built relationships with guys like sean and mike gorman and scott souza and steve bolpet and these people who we've known haven't done this show here for a a decade Um, and we've got some new listeners who maybe haven't listen to every single episode you know we've recorded with these fellas and so it's great for for the, our new listeners and maybe even some of our old listeners to learn a little bit more about who these guys are, who they you know why they got into this, uh why they got into sports journalism, sports media, sports you know broadcasting and the like. Uh and so I think it was a great idea to to head down this road. The old bobcast. We're we're taking our our, our cues from an eighteen year old on his way to college. That's that's new media folks. <laughs> In case you're curious, you know, things have changed. So it's great though. And and the one thing I want to say before we start this series too is that I think we we really are somewhat blessed here as Celtics fans in that there's some other uh, markets and there are some other uh, perhaps you know beats on on the go that in town and in Boston and in New England that aren't quite as forgi- as forgiving aren't quite as open aren't quite as uh, able to to make this this switch to to new media and and the world we live in today. And from when Justin and I started, yeah, you know, started out, and, and Justin before me, uh, ten years ago, we've had really nothing but great experiences with so many of the folks who cover the team, and uh, I really just look forward to have a chance so all of you can have a chance to understand where these guys came from, how they got into doing what they're doing, and and uh, you know, really understanding why uh they've been so willing to participate in something where they get no fees <laughs> for coming on and talking to us and uh it's it's been great to have them uh part of this ride here over the last 10 years.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point is Boston has been out on the the front end or the front uh, leading leading market for adopting new media and that's definitely been very fantastic. Speaking of new media, you can follow CSL on Twitter at CSL underscore tweet live as well as myself at CSL underscore Justin and John here is at CSL underscore Duke. The entire CLNS Radio Network at CLNS Radio our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash CLNS. Don't forget to download our app. Just go to your app marketplace Search CLNS Radio. We've got it for iOS and Android. And the YouTube channel, which had some interesting uh, rundowns of Chris Forsberg's summer forecast. We we had content updated this week, so go to youtube.com backslash CLNS Radio. And then once the season starts, you're going to get those full-length locker room interviews and the Garden Report with Jared Weiss. And, you know, we're going to kick it off, John. This interview series is going to start with one of our favorites. Sean Grandy, play-by-play voice of the Boston Celtics, we're going to bring him on here in just a minute. But I'll I'll just say uh, Sean reached out because we posted the uh, retrospective on the KG acquisition, uh, coinciding with the date of the acquisition on July 31st. We reissued that show, and and Sean was one of the interviews and. It's interesting to look back, and, and Sean tweeted it, retweeted it out, and sent me a message and said, boy, that was uh, that was really surprising. I, I didn't realize, you know, that I had been talking about Kevin Garnett weeks before, and actually months before, it actually became a reality.
2: Well... And that's the great thing about Sean is, of course, is that, you know, we've had him on and and he was always somebody, especially going into before that draft. And we were talking about Ejin Leon and we talked about Al Horford and we're talking about, you know, and and Sean, (laughs) true to his word and true to his nature, always been like, well, the rookies are nice and fine and all, but I'm not a big believer. I like the, the, the stars, that like the, the veterans. And, you know, he, he pointed us in the right direction. And, and he, he was right. Boy, was he ever right. And what a difference did Kevin Garnett make here in Boston.
1: Oh, just a huge one. So we're going to head off to Sean here in just a minute. We'll get it all kicked off. But real quick, want to remind everybody about our sponsor, Fan Essentials. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Just check out fanessentials.net. All you have to do is pick your favorite sports team, which I imagine is the Celtics, if you're listening to this show. And every month, you get team gear shipped right to your door. They find sports gear so you don't have to, and each fan box comes fully packed with some amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices starting at just 34.99. You can support Celtics Stuff Live and save 30% on the first month of your subscription by using promo code CSL2016 at the checkout. Go to fanessentials.net to get all the essentials you need. Celtic Stuff Live is giving away one free month each week to our listeners. All you need to do is retweet our show announcement with hashtag fan essentials. And make sure you're following at CSL underscore tweet live so we can send you a direct message. We will announce the winner on every week's show. So stay tuned. At the end of the show, we're going to announce this week's winner. Joining us now to kick off our off-season interview series, Sean Grandy, play-by-play voice of the Boston Celtics, good friend of the show. Sean, thanks for for coming on and and kicking off our coverage during the off-season to help Celtics fans sort of stay engaged and and get ready for training camp, which is right around the corner.
0: You know the deal, as long as I was first, I'm in.
1: (laughs) (laughs) True to form, you know, we've talked about this. But this whole uh, alternate persona that you've taken on with our show, uh, you know, with, with the Gorman slash Grandy uh, tit for tat, I just I think that's funny because you really reserve that
0: only for Celtic stuff live, don't you? Podcasts create an opportunity that you don't have in a lot of places, so it just I'm not sure how it evolved, and maybe it, we were kind of talking about the Kevin Garnett flashback show from 2007. You know, maybe that's where, and that's about the time you guys were starting up, it it sort of started as, you know, this sort of, not not disagreement, you know, Mike and I disagree about a lot of things. Like, we disagree about Carmelo Anthony, and we disagree about, you know, there's a lot of things we disagree about. Obviously, anyone that's ever heard us know, as good, as close as we have been over the years, and obviously we're very close, our styles are extremely different in the way we approach the job and the way we deliver it, which to me has always worked out extremely well for Celtic fans, because, It's, you know, it's like having two completely different chefs and how do you like your food? How do you want it served? And we're going to serve it completely opposite ways. But it evolved into this thing where I'm not really sure other than my longtime love of bad guy wrestlers that, I, I don't know, it just seemed like this natural thing that I evolved into and just like basically went heel. On this podcast, and just started like you know pumping up myself and you know it's taking your personality and turning it way up and uh you guys seem to laugh so hard every time I did it that I just kept doing it more, and then all these years later, I've got my own you know podcast persona
1: well we we love that you have it, and uh you know I wasn't finished around. talking yet, you don't speak into oh no. <laughs> see now that you're uh now that you're with bellator mma i could i could hear it you've got you know more aggression more aggression assertiveness in your voice
0: can't tell you though here's the one thing i've learned about bellator and mma and last year how convenient it would be if it were pro wrestling if you could actually get the you know because you build up for months about a certain thing anticipating a certain result and then you know the opposite thing happens and you want to yell cut like what Wait a minute, like, you know, we had a, a fight last October where we had a guy named Brandon Halsey, who's a young kid in Cal State Bakersfield and Fresno State, and he was basically a 185 version of Brock Lesnar. He was 9-0, he was already the world champion, he'd rolled over everybody, and we were sort of, you know, from my strategically, in creating the personalities and sort of pumping them up so people get to know them, the idea was that he was going to run over this guy and be like a long-term world champion, and that was going to be the thing. He was like this bully that couldn't be touched. And he goes into the championship fight, he dominates the first round, he almost submits the guy on, on two, and then in the second round, he's dominating again, and he just gets caught with a liver kick, which if you've ever been hit with a liver kick, you know, that's it. Once you take a good shot, it's over. And he just crumples to the canvas, the fight's over, he loses, and it's like, we just spent the last three hours building up the main event and this guy to go on this long, dominant run, so it's, it's, it has some of the elements of personality building of pro wrestling. But obviously, it being a shoot and it being legitimate, you just can't, you just can't anticipate the results sometimes. So we had a, we had one of the biggest upsets in MMA history. Our last time out, a young guy named Darian Caldwell was undefeated, former national champion from NC State. And I think they said I wasn't really paying attention to the odds. They were talking about it being a twelve to one or fourteen to what, which in MMA is ridiculous. Like a twelve to one underdog in MMA is is unheard of. And I think it was like the third biggest odds upset in the history of the sport. So. You never know. How did the Bellator
1: uh, opportunity come about? I read an article about it, and, you know, you had to do a lot of research and study before you got into, you know, doing the coverage on Spike Sports. But, you know, how did it evolve? Did, did they just approach you? Or, they did. You know, maybe uh, you can tell us I, the background. I got
0: there. a call. It was um – It was March last year. What I remember, and the reason I remember that is that they were doing, we were in Indiana in the hotel where they were doing the NCAA tournament selection. That's what I remember about it because they were doing it. The Celtics played a Saturday night game in Indiana, and the next night was the tournament selection. And everybody, all the tournament people were in the hotel. It was like in the hotel where they were doing it. So that's why I remember it. And they called and said, are you interested? And I said, I have to be honest, i have never, ever thought about it. If you're a play-by-play guy and you've done the big four your whole life, I've always thought I'd get a call one day to do soccer, which I did years ago. And here's a little lesson for you aspiring broadcasters. When they call you, as they did me in 1998, and say, uh, our guy's the World Cup, can you do a major league soccer game? The answer is yes, regardless of the fact that I had never been to a soccer game in my life before that. You just say yes, and then you, you learn on the fly. So I, but a little bit older, I didn't say yes right away. I said I, it was I, it, soccer, golf, Tennis, um, you wonder what you might get the opportunity to do. I, soccer, especially in the back of my mind, because so many of you know, friends of mine or colleagues or just people, you know, Jack Edwards, Dave O'Brien, Gus Johnson, people I know that are friends of mine have been called into that world and just, and these are, you know, eminent broadcasters in many ways in their field, and they've just gotten destroyed by the soccer people. So in my mind, I've always had that, like, how would you do that? That's how a play-by-play guy works. How would you do that if you were given the opportunity to do it? So MMA, I never, and boxing, combat sports, I never considered. And I just sort of tried it on. And I, I met, I'll be honest with you, it was not an automatic yes. I met with a lot of people. I met with people at Fox and people at ESPN to ask them about the stigma of it. You know, is there, this isn't like, it was five, you know, five years ago or ten years ago. Obviously, it's a it's a huge, big deal right now. And, you know, we did the show, you know, God Rest His Soul, What Most Likes, his last fight. We drew three million people. <laughs> Watch that fight on Spike. So it's obviously gotten very big. You know, the, the, what the UFC's done in the last couple of years with Rhonda and, and Conor McGregor, everybody knows it. So the, it was. I, I kind of got to go ahead from my people in that field. And I had to sort of explore. And, you know, I've been waiting for other opportunities, you know, I don't mind telling you guys, in other areas, you know, in the NFL or whatever, and it was a matter of, okay, if those things aren't going to be there, I'm not going to sit around and be the second alternate to do a fill-in NFL game if there's an opportunity to, you know, Spike Sports came and basically told me what I had been waiting to hear from CBS or ABC or ESPN or Turner or anybody over the years, which is, we want you to be our guy, we want you to be our franchise, we think you're a franchise player, and so, it became uh, an extraordinary challenge an academic challenge can i do a new sport can i start from scratch and do a new sport at the level that i'm comfortable you know like with my skill set doing something brand new it just became to me this huge challenge all of a sudden could i do it so that's how it that's how it came about and i just decided you, to jump off the cliff do you
1: have to grow to love the sport to do a good job covering it? That's a great I mean, question. I'm, I'm sure you have, but at the same time, you know, is that the biggest question when you're evaluating it is,
0: it's a, can a, I... That's a really good question. Here's how I'd answer it. I think to be great at it, you better... You have to love what you're doing. You have to really... If you don't care, I mean, it's, it's my job to get you to care. It's my job if you decide to put on the show. Uh, it's, I'm trying to think of who it is who, who's attributed with the quote of of writers of entertainers or whatever it is our job to captivate you for as long as we have asked for your attention and if you're going to try it out one night it's my job to make you interested in the fighters and the fights. and to do that i have to be interested in them and that's what quickly happened to me was how interested i became and how much respect i had for the fighters and their stories and what they do Particularly, now we're in an age, as the sport grows, the top guys are now full-time mixed martial artists. And some of them are very well-paid, high-level athletes. But a lot of them, even at the UFC Bellator level, which is the top level in the sport, once you start moving down towards the middle, these are people that have jobs. You know, that have regular... You know, depending on where you are, you know, in, in your life and how much money you've made or whatever, some of these people aren't full-time fighters. And that's when I really just became engrossed because what I found... MMA is basically where the sports you're thinking of, NBA, Major League Base, it's basically where these sports were decades ago, where guys would have jobs in the offseason, where the, the players' unions are not completely set in place yet, where free agency, which is the biggest story in the sport in 2016, now that you have a strong second group, guys are jumping back and forth, and they have real free agency, and they can truly test the market. This is all decades old to the big four. But in MMA, it's new, and that goes with the way it's covered. You know, you see guys, you know, Ariel Hawani who was thrown out of the UFC event for breaking a story a couple of months ago. This is the kind of thing that would happen decades ago, it's, but you can't, you know. I think there's growing pains with the sport, trying to operate suddenly with the spotlight. Combat sports used to be able to do whatever you want because nobody cared or they were paying attention. Now, somebody fails a drug test or whatever, the whole Brock Lesnar thing, it's the lead story on SportsCenter. So that's kind of it's a fascinating time to be in the sport as well. Well, the ride to the top is always the most fun. I mean,
1: even watching the Celtics go through numerous rebuilds, uh, two under the Danny Ainge era, that's the most exciting. Is watching it get to the championship level, and I would think that that is part of the draw in covering MMA as well because of what you're saying, that it's establishing itself as maybe a fifth major sport. And I wanted to ask you, I know telling a story is really the most important piece of your job. Like you said, how, how do you get people interested? You tell a story. Your monologues before Celtics games are epic that way uh, for any regular season game. So I guess what I would ask you is, is it different trying to tell a story is at a different pace in covering mma than it is the celtics you know like you mentioned golf or soccer you know i would think doing golf boy you better be a hell of an interesting person to fill the space you know in between yeah. right like golf has to be one of the hardest sports to cover i would think as an announcer but how is how is bellator mma different from trying to cover the celtics from having that narrative and filling the
0: space between fights versus between quarters i think everything is different and our show is becoming increasingly you know personality driven and we're showing you the fighters that you're going to see later and the fighters that you're going to want to see and i'm trying to include this is where i sort of applied my style and found my niche is in the storytelling in with the promos for the fights coming up, seeing the fighters in a locker room area, you know, coming up next, this guy. And, you know, you watch a lot of old, watch combat sports, and generally they'll show the two guys who are going to fight. And you'll hear announcer A say, and here's, you know, Justin Poulin, and he's 12-4, and and he's going to be in the main event against John Duke, and he's, you know, 14. If I can find some nuggets. Did you just give John a better record than me? I did. He gets it. I did. But you know what? Who has he beaten? Thank you. This is the point. This is what you learned about MMA. Here's the difference between MMA and boxing. You notice in boxing everybody is 28 and one
2: because yeah, they have to fight. True. You have then to pad you your record right, to be you considered a
0: serious lose. contender. In MMA, it's almost more important to lose because that's how you learn and whatever. It's a completely different culture, which is fascinating. A lot of that has to do with like the jitsu culture and you know learning and being humbled, sort of on your way up. It's a completely different you know different animal. These are all little things that I've learned over the years, but everything is, is different. And my, my thing has sort of become the walks to the, to the cage in the, in the big fights, we have the big screens, like you see on WWE and the walks. That's when I've got my 60 seconds to sell this fighter and his story and something interesting that he may have told me or something interesting about his background or tying it into other, other sports. That's something I do a lot. Well, I'll, I'll bring up, you know, I've talked about Steph Curry and I've talked about Cam Newton and I've talked about LeBron in connecting things that they've done in their careers to what these guys have done in their careers and just a way to, you know, to, to make it more understandable. But pace is all about, you know, I'm asked all the time, like, what's your favorite thing? you something that I'm really proud of, and this is just, I bring it up because of pace. Three years ago, when I was asked to do the Red Sox, the reaction to that, you know, knock on, this isn't backdoor brag or whatever, was overwhelming. But I believe that it was overwhelming because I don't think people thought I could do it. And they, didn't, they were shocked to hear me at that baseball pace. You know, so to me, it's like you know, it's a singer singing a different you – know, it's like Meryl Streep doing a different role. It's a singer singing a different thing. I think the best analogy I've come up with with play-by-play, play, which is trying to salvage a way to understand in my own mind that your life's work is – my business doesn't work based on who has the highest batting average. In my line of work, you can hit 380 in AAA every year and never get called up. You could hit 220 in the majors, but if there's something about your game that people like, or whatever, you get the you know it's it's a lot more random. So to me, I've I've kind of come up with the cooking analogy that there's because people it's so subjective. I could be one of the best chefs in the world, and my specialty is steak tartare, and I make the best steak tartare in the world. If you like your steak, well done. You're not going to like my specialty dish. You know what I'm saying? Because it's not the way you want it served. So, everything's a different the ability, the real trick to me, the skill and the reason that I like the guys that can do the the multiple sports at a high level because that to me is the challenge. Mike Emmerich is the greatest hockey announcer of all time. There's no question about that. But Kenny Albert, all right, he isn't Mike Emmerich doing hockey, but he does all the – Sean McDonough does all the sports at a high level. That, to me, is the true – that's the true skill, the ability to reinvent yourself and tell whatever story is to be told the way it's supposed to be told.
1: See, I was going to compare it to John Travolta doing
0: Pulp Fiction. That's a good one, too. I can – you know, I, that worked for Travolta and, and Bruce – I mean, well, Bruce Willis basically played the same part I thought Bruce every Willis – Absolutely. He was really That's, good, but he played the same. Off. Bruce Willis has played the same part in every movie. Uh, John, <laughs> Co- John, John Cougar Mellencamp. It's the same song. It's all about <laughs> you live in a small town, it's got pink houses, and there's the, it's the same song. It is the same. It's a great song, but it is the same song over and over again. You know, there's no. That's,
1: that is true.
0: Yeah. Hey, who are your favorite sports teams growing up? I, was, I have a strange New York combination, because in New York, there's generally the old and the new, and there's the uh, Yankees, Giants, Rangers, uh, what am I forgetting, and Knicks go together, and sort of the, the Mets, and Islanders, and Jets, and in theory, the Net, you know, whatever. I had a strange combination in that I was a Mets, Jets, but Rangers, Knicks person then the the baseball thing is very strange if you don't have a parental push and i didn't one way or the other in new york i mean think about this if you grow up in new england you're a red sox fan generally speaking the older you get you got the old days when the the football giants sort of trickled in here before the patriots and there's still that little carryover of, of giants fans up here generationally but i didn't have a push so if you're a random fan in new york as a kid you have to sort of choose randomly and to me at age four The National League teams, to me, had better uniforms. So I liked the National League better. And so that's how I became a Mets fan, which was really unfortunate because that was a lot of suffering over a lot of years, unnecessarily. But, yeah, I just became a Mets fan. um, The Jets also played at Shea Stadium, so I became a Jets fan, too. And then I I basically grew up in Madison Square Garden, so I was a Ranger Nick guy.
1: I did know that you were a Mets fan, and I think we've talked about it on the show before. But then, all right, how did you make your way to Boston? Huh. And did that kind of make your did that make you conflicted with your loyalties towards
0: you know your New York teams? Not by that time. Although I have this, <clears throat> it's gone now. I had this strange left brain hip check thing when I'm at Madison Square Garden and I'm reading the score going to break <clears throat> about. I, I, my brain sometimes wants to flip the teams when I'm going to break. It's this bizarre thing about the home team or whatever, and I've never really figured it out. But it wasn't really a loyalty thing because by the time you're my, like, to me, the Rangers winning the Stanley Cup, and I was, what, I don't know, 22, whatever it was, I was just out of school. You sort of, that was kind of like the end of your fan. It's like the end of your childhood, the end of your fandom. You've accomplished, like, the, it's like the ultimate fan moment. Um, you know, when the Rangers won the Stanley Cup, I imagine for a lot of Bruins fans when they won and certainly Red Sox fans, no one Oh four. So it wasn't, it wasn't really a conflict. You know, I came to Boston. Remember I came into the league. It's so funny because for so many years, I was the Timberwolves guy that came back to, but now the Timberwolves is like this asterisk on my, you know, it's like three years of my 20 something year career. Um, But, you know, I came into Minnesota. I, I, I went to school in Boston. So, this became sort of my home, and I worked. Obviously, I was at E. E. I. when it started. I was in, interning there as a student at BU when when E. E. I. first went on the air, and so Boston was a natural, a natural spot. And here's something you want to you want some breaking news that's never been said on the air before. Yes, absolutely. In 1997, and I'll leave out the names of the people. Um, I was whatever 25. You know, my life's dream was a major league play-by-play job. I was pulled aside by, I'll just say, management. My two people in management at the radio station, and I was told that Spencer Ross was not going to be renewed, and that I was in. This is 1997, and it was at once this amazing thing, but it was horrible because Spencer Ross had been nothing but kind to me. He was a great man, um, such a you know a kind man. I have so much respect for him. He gone out of his way to try to help me and offer me tips you know when i was doing boston college football back at that time and it was just another clue inside i'd already had plenty by 25 how you know brutal management can be in broadcasting and just you know nobody wants to just treat people fairly or treat them straight but i was told for so for about three or four months in 1997 in that winter into spring i was told i was the guy this is what was going to happen and i was going to take over celtics in 1997 and then Rick Pitino came in and the profile of the job. now remember when Rick, we know in retrospect what happened in the Rick Pitino years but let's go back to 1997 it was a coronation when Pitino got here and it was going to be the, the Celtics were the, the next big thing and suddenly they didn't want a 25 year old kid with no experience as the, as the team's announcer so all of a sudden that, that got reneged and Howard David ended up coming in and that was the beginning of me saying, okay, I got to get out of here. And a year later, the Timberwolves job came up, and that's how I ended up. I could very easily have gone straight to Celtics, and the Minnesota thing never would have happened, which would have been bad for me, I think, on a lot of levels. You know, just leaving town and starting your own, you know, going off on your own. But, yeah, it's kind of a, uh, I would say a little known, it's almost a completely unknown part of history that I almost started directly with the Celtics in 97 rather than going to uh, Minnesota in 98.
1: Well, well, we're going to go to college hockey and and football, et cetera, in a minute. But I think just because you brought up the Timberwolves, and I want to go back to something you kind of queued up earlier, which was we recently released our flashback series, and we went back to the Kevin Garnett trade. And you know, you mentioned that being so important for you to to have gone to Minnesota and spent, I think it was three years there. Is that correct? Yep. So you spent three years in Minnesota. Um, You know, how much you saw it coming way before everybody else. And I know you and I already talked about this a little bit, but it was sort of we noticed or we were reminded in that flashback series doing the interview that you'd been talking about Kevin Garnett coming to Boston for months, even prior to the draft and and the Ray Allen trade, etc. You'd been talking about it for months and because twitter wasn't then what it is now nobody really ran with it it lay dormant and you almost had it i told you so kind of moment when we brought you on the show and said all right let's talk about it kevin garnett's coming to boston but you know i gotta think that because of your time with the timberwolves part of the reason why you saw this
0: coming you know miles away yeah there were i mean listen there's oftentimes that we know things that People don't because of our jobs and whatever. That was one of them. This happens all the time, you know. In the whole Twitter, the Twitter age only escalated the whole nonsense of who has a story first, which, ninety nine times out of hundred, is just a matter of not. That's that's too high. Nine times out of ten, is just somebody having it ten seconds before somebody else. Who cares? It's irrelevant. If somebody has a true story and they're really breaking a story, the. Uh, you know, the, the sexual assault of the U.S. gymnast, you know, like a real investigative story. That's different. That's a true story that somebody has looked into and they're creating it. It's not like this 10-second race. But the Twitter people, you know, people at cover the team would get annoyed with me when I would have, when I would tweet something first or I would have because of access, not realizing that my access prevents me from, you know, nine times out of 10, I know, I know, already know the stuff that everyone's happening. I'm just not allowed to say it. So on the rare occasions that I can, this this was information I had, and it didn't come from the Celtics, and it came from different people in the league uh, about Garnett. And there were two elements of it, and I just thought at the time nobody. I was amazed that it didn't really catch. And I did Dennis Callahan on E. I was filling in for Jerry Callahan. Do a whole show with John Dennis about a whole bunch of stuff, and Barry Bonds was coming in to play the Red Sox, and are people going to boo him or not, or whatever. And the show's winding down, and we're going to we're in a commercial break, and John says, is there anything about the Celtics, any free agents, anything else, anything you could throw out as a topic? And I said, yep. And he said, so, like, if they're a big name, I'm like, just ask me. So, and I, you know, I'd known this stuff and waited for somebody to ask me, but it wasn't my place to go out and say it. But I was curious if somebody raised the flag up or threw it out there, raised up the flagpole, I guess is the expression, what would the reaction be? And so... I, John Dennis sort of teed me up the question, is there anybody, are there any sort of free agents on the market or any any scenario by which the Celtics could make a big splash in the offseason? And I said, yeah, Kevin Garnett. I think his time is done in Minnesota, blah, blah, blah. You have the clip, I don't know if you're going to play in this or not, of what I had said to you. It was very similar to what I said to you in June, which was... This is back from our June
1: 17th interview, 11 days before the draft. I must tell you,
0: I find it very, very interesting that nobody, and I mean nobody, has said the words Kevin Garnett, but if for no other reason than to have the discussion. After a week
1: of Sean Marion and Rashard Lewis and Jermaine O'Neal, why not think of the biggest fish that could be out
0: there? When everyone was talking about, and I forget the other names now, I I was reminded when you played that clip a few weeks ago of the different names that people were talking about. And I was like, well, if you're going to think about those guys, why not dream big? and go for the biggest one, you know, the biggest fish there is in Garnett. So I had, you know, I did have some idea that it was, it was discussion and that I knew that the Celtics and the Lakers were the teams that had the two best offers because they had the two best bigs to build around, Al Jefferson and Andrew Bynum. when I didn't realize that we had done such a good job building up Al Jefferson and exactly what you had said about MMA, about how exciting it is to be there in the climb, I underestimated how attached people had become to Al Jefferson. And thus leading to the Boston Herald poll, which I to this day will cite over and over and over again. 80% of the people, or the fans voting, were against trading Al Jefferson for Kevin Garnett. And of the four Celtic broadcasters, three of them were staunchly against it. One of which said, if the Celtics trade Al Jefferson for Kevin Garnett, I will quit. These are all forgotten parts of history and hyperbole and whatever that made it fun. But it just, I find it interesting... You always have, when history happens, you have to look back at something like that. When something happens and people are going to be really against it, when the Celtics take Jalen Brown and everyone was disappointed because they wanted Chris Dunn or they thought something else was going to happen, I make a note of that. When everybody destroys the Terry Rozier pick, and I like Terry Rozier, as you guys know, because I got killed on Twitter that night for saying that I like Terry Rozier. And I just, I'm like, okay. Because now I've, I've been around. Al Pacino, Scent of a Wung. I've been around, you know. I've seen some things. So here we are. I, I've seen times when 80% of the people were staunchly against what I thought would be the greatest thing in the history of great things. And, yeah, so when Kevin Garnett the next year was having the year he had, an MVP caliber year, did I have some moments when I was calling the games when it was hard not to turn my palms up like Michael Jordan in the 92 finals? Like, I told you so? Of course. And one of the most significant moments, and we've probably talked about this on the show before, one of the most significant moments in play-by-play history is an I-told-you-so. Down Goes Frazier is an I-told-you-so. Howard Cosell was the only one that picked Foreman to beat Frazier. Down Goes Frazier isn't Down Goes Frazier. Down Goes Frazier is I-told-you. I-told-you-so. Listen to the call. Listen to it again now, wherever you are listening to this, unless you're in your car. Go on YouTube and play it again, and now know that Cosell was the only one who picked Foreman over Frazier, listen to it again. Of course emotion comes out, and down goes Frazier. Told you so. Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! The heavyweight champion is taking the mandatory eight count, and Foreman is as poised as can be in a neutral corner. He is as poised as can be. We have a minute left in this first round, and already this fight is proving out what some have expected.
2: That's really interesting. Go ahead, John. Well, no, I was just, that's, well, and and I don't think anyone thought that there was anything untoward about that. I think, that, you know, you when you're right about something, and this, how often have we seen people, and we saw this most recently on, on Twitter and, and all this, these people who have purported to, are breaking stories, but certainly don't appear to have that access. And I think there's a respect from those of us who are fans, who are or or viewers or listeners uh, of of yours and of others to say, look, there's there's a point there where we can't expect you to to open up the <laughs> open up the door and say, see, this is what it is but when when we do have that peek inside it's it's really fascinating and that's one of the joys i've had of having you on with us is that you, you know you there's certain things that you know that you can't share with us but when you give us that little peek into inside i think that's what what people what really gets people excited about having you on these shows and and these podcasts because it's a very different role for you just as you said earlier to be a pod, you know the, the the guest on a show like this whereas when you're a host it's a very different role how how has that, as new media kind of has come in? And you talked about you know, finding that voice, I guess, early on. But what, as, as we've seen this new media kind of translate, where have you kind of seen that as maybe an opportunity for you to, to share a different side of yourself or a different side of the story maybe than is being shared elsewhere?
0: I think that you just have to embrace it. When Twitter started... I was very leery of it for a couple of reasons, um, and I've always felt this. I, this. I said this to you probably on the, on the show four or five years ago when I first started doing it, but, and I still think to some degree it's true that Twitter is a new car and we're all 16. You know, like We're going to smash this thing up before we figure out exactly how to use it. We're going to crash it a few times. And I knew with my sense of humor, number one, and that line we talk about, about reporting stuff, I got, I got a call from the NBA. A few years ago, about something I had tweeted, which I thought was, and it was one of those things like, I got a call from the league, and it wasn't a threat. You know, it was, it was a very nice, friendly call, but it was about, are you with the team? Are you, like, what do you, it was about, some. it was about a buyout thing. Like, I knew that if, like, the, somebody had bought out Reggie Evans at the Celtics would probably be interested in signing him. This is, I don't know, four years ago, five years, it doesn't really matter. Um, and I knew that was the case, so it was like, you know, hey, keep an eye out for a, and I got a call, like, hey, if you're connected to the team, you can't be talking about other teams, players and stuff like that. And there was the thing, you know, I, (laughs) I did have to apologize to the president of the Miami heat. Uh, I was asked to, and I did, I didn't, you know, I actually did it willingly, um, several years ago about a very popular tweet about the dance team. during the Eastern conference finals. Uh, so again, with my sense of humor, you can, you know, you can walk that line, but to me, if you don't... When I was young, I saw middle-aged white guys, and they would turn their nose up at what was new and whatever. I made a career of it. It depends on how hard... You really have to be a hardcore, either a Grandy fan or just a coincidence of following the things that I've done. But when we first started the big show with Glenn Ordway, and this is 20 years ago now, I created... Were you the, the
1: sports director? I'm sorry, but was, I was that when
0: you were the sports director? Was, yeah. okay. and it was, But part of that was I was... I did the updates on the afternoon show and I was a producer of that show, but I also created that the character the Flashboy character. And the reason I did was the show was largely middle aged white men and middle aged men in general and there was no twenty five year old voice on that show. So the Flashboy character was just this and he sort of had to be because we were one of the middle aged white guys to have money, that's the audience. That was the audience of the show that you wanted, but you still needed the other voice. So that became sort of the, I became that annoying 25 year old kid who was skate, would like skateboard into your legs outside tower records, you know, with no regard for whatever. and generation X. Um, and even now that generation X is now middle-aged, right? but at the time you just needed that counter voice, you know, with like Nomar, Nomar was God at that time. He was the Red Sox player. So flash boy didn't like Nomar. Because the establishment liked him. So I found it was a fairly little known center fielder named Darren Bragg back in those days who was, he was more of like the. I remember Darren. Okay. So he was more of the skateboarder. (laughs) You know, he was more that little uh, poor man, Lenny Dykstra. So I kind of picked him out, and Flashboy became just this huge Darren Bragg fan. And no matter what would happen, if Nomar hit a grand slam to win the game, I would instead play the highlight of Darren Bragg grounding out to move the runners up earlier in the inning you know instead just just to be you know like to be anti and that's the whole point is you want to be you want to appeal to all different demographics and when I left the show and you know Pete Shepard was very popular he did a great job doing what Pete Shepard does I, w- I didn't want Pete Shepard to do it not that I didn't like Pete Shepard I wanted somebody else to come in and I thought Flashboy was like you know this is really dating myself but there was that music group Menudo and when you got to be a certain age you were out and to me, I thought when I left the show to go to the Timberwolves, I thought somebody else should come in. And It's funny because John Rischel ended up doing some stuff at the station. He was my choice. So I wanted somebody else to come in and play Flashboy and just be the, that character should have stayed because you want that younger. And even now, the sta- that's what happened. Yeah, the station just generally just got old. And you just have to have – it's fine if the star of your show is a 50-year-old white guy. That's great. But where's the 25-year-old voice? You know, on the show, on the station. Well, and like you have to 20.
1: recruit, because eventually that 25-year-old yeah.
0: becomes... That's
1: exactly your, right. Your, your station has to be able to appeal wide yeah. enough so that you still capture the demographic that generates revenue. It's a, it's a no-brainer.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's not, you know, none of this is, is brain surgery, but that's, you know, what new media is. And you have to figure out how, how new media works. I think we talked about this a little bit off the air. There's a lot of stuff that makes me, you know, I, I have sort of institutional memory when it comes to the Celtics. I've done, you know, more the earlier years when I was courtside, you actually your memory for the games is better than it is, you know, when you're not. But I you know, I can something will happen and it'll make me think of a game from two thousand three. Now and I know hey there was a big game that somebody had you know, Mark Blunt had a ton of rebounds right when he was in that contract year in two thousand four. So I know right where to look. But now with basketball reference and the internet, whatever, it's pretty easy. You can do a quick search for the top rebounding games. In the last 15 years, I have every I have files that I complete. I do 30 minutes after every game, making these files that I've had for 15 years. That basketball reference doesn't make them obsolete, but it makes them not as my stuff isn't as unique as it was, or it's easier to to get the information yourself than it was. But still, because I'm doing play by play and not writing, I can immediately recall something that happened. You were talking about college hockey when I was doing the national championship game in 2009 which is, you know, one of the greatest games of all time, which is the BU comeback, Uh, Miami actually had a chance to score in the final couple of seconds of regulation. And in the course of calling the save and that's the end of regulation, I remembered that in 1991, BU had a chance at the end of regulation. That Tony Monti had a very similar chance. So having institutional memory and having had no life where you've done nothing to damage your brain cells which is the trade-off for having this lousy, boring life that I've had. But I have all my brain cells, so I can remember and recall immediately that this thing happened in April of 1991 that just happened again. So,
1: Well, you talked about writing, and it's been a long time, but there was, back in the, the KG era, a time where you were writing for Celtics.com, and I think you'll remember, you know, I always really enjoyed those those articles, and I think partly because not only do you have a talent for telling a story, but also because you would integrate a lot of those statistics. And I think now as we, I'm going to tie this into the Twitter conversation and just say that a lot of the fans that are on Twitter are definitely looking at advanced stats. And and I know on your last appearance on the show, we talked about that as well. and, And that maybe some of the advanced statistics are a little overrated, but at the end of the day, you were bringing a lot of statistics and, probably at a time when nobody else was really looking at you know that as strongly as now. There's a huge market for, on Twitter, fans who like to yeah. look at the team statistically. So it's funny, I don't think you've written for Celtics.com for quite some time, but I always enjoyed that, and, you know, it was it was somewhat fleeting, was it? I mean, I don't think you did
0: more than 10 articles, did you? I think the one year, uh, well, I'll tell you how many I did in 2008. I just happened to remember because the number turned out to be 17, which was ironic. You know, oh, that is interesting. The way interesting. it worked out. But, yeah, that was just something they asked me to do, and if they asked me to do it again, I'd certainly consider it. takes a lot. You know, they, they want me to do something for, uh, you know, like eight five has asked me to do stuff and to write things like that, but as you know, there's not a... A ton of money involved in that, and when you have three jobs and a four-year-old, you tend to pick and choose your uh, pick and choose your battles. But I do I do enjoy it, and I I like you know the advanced stats. I like everything. Show me everything, and then I'll decide what what I like and what's relevant and what's not. I think you can you can go too far one way or the other. You can't completely ignore it. There are guys who are like ah eh, you know, and I've seen that at the broadcast meetings when the new media comes up, social media and Twitter and stuff, and guys are like ah. Eh. You know, when Twitter came up, I did that game, you know, we... Max was on TV, I think, a couple of times the first year I was on Twitter. So I did these Twitter games as an experiment. Like, because it was instant, I would call the play, and then I would look at Twitter and see what people were saying, and I would sort of use that as the analysis. And it was, you know, an up-and-down experiment, but it was least really something, you, know, you try it. You do it. There's a guy named David Locke who does the Utah Jazz, and he's sort of at the fore, like, he'll try... He's a social media. He's insane with this stuff. He's tweeted like two hundred thousand times. I can't even keep track of it. But he does videos. That, he does stuff that you know teams should be doing, especially with the radio guys. You should be doing videos after every game and posting them now. It's easy to do. But you know, some teams diversification yeah.
1: is really
0: key in
1: the new media world.
0: Yeah, and and what do your fans want? I, the thing that opened my eyes was this is at least ten years ago now. And I asked questions. How many? How many fans? What percentage of fans do you think are on their laptops or have some kind of device open while they're enjoying your broadcast? And it was like that old, you know, these old TV commercials. Like some people said, twenty percent. Do you think it's twenty percent, thirty percent more? If you guess twenty, you know, you're. And it was oh, it was eighty percent then. It was seventy eight. You know, then ten years ago it was, and that was the moment that I knew everything had changed. And I've changed everything since then. And I know right now, I reach far more people. And I think Twitter in general, it feels like it. I don't know the numbers, and maybe you guys do. It feels like it's cooled off in the last year or two. And I remember the first couple of years I was on, it was really getting hot. Uh, And I don't really know if that's true or that's not true. But I know I reach more. Generally speaking, when you could factor in retweets and people, I reach far more people on Twitter than I do doing the games. I know that. I think think you
1: get the more loyal, dedicated follower on Twitter. And when you say it's cooled off, I think it's just boiled down to a certain core, but
0: maybe the peripheral folks yeah. are not
1: as engaged.
0: Yeah, I don't – and who knows? And I think maybe more and more people get on, but then they start following 800 people, so you know, your stuff doesn't have as much – I don't know. I don't know the answer. I don't know the metrics of it. There was a time I was interested, and in. there's times that, again, you have a four-year-old, and that takes up more of your time. But, um, I, you know, you want to provide as much information for as many people as possible, but I know I've had reactions to things – on Twitter, that people didn't actually hear the broad, you know—people didn't actually hear the broadcast. Like I said, I've—how many words have I spoken on Celtics broadcasts over 15 years? Over doing—I'm not sure what the number is. I know I've done—it's over 1,500 games in a league. I know Max and I have done 13 or—there's I, I, there's some crazy. Like we had Max and I did our thousandth game four years ago. So we're up close to 1,500 or whatever. I don't know the numbers. But think of how many words I've spoken on for three and a half hours times, 15, you know, how many thousands, millions of words I've spoken and never had any kind of trouble or whatever. Whereas Twitter, I had that call from the NBA. I told you I had to apologize to the heat. You know, think, so there's, there's more impact from stuff like that. It just is. All right. So the voice of the Frozen
1: Four, three Emmy uh, nominations. I know you covered BU and BC hockey, and you won the 1999 Emmy for best play-by-play. I think you know John and I are both graduates of UMaine, and unfortunately the the team has not been as good as they were when you covered Hockey East. But Hockey East was the best hockey going at that time.
0: I think it was, and I think you know I like to think that we did a really good job covering it um, with the Hockey East game of the week and kind of advanced it i think the nchc games on cbs sports network now are now the best college hockey telecasts that have ever been done uh, i'm happy to have done a couple of those but yeah it was a it was a great time it was a sport and it's funny because well a lot of people knew me from that and that's certainly what started my rise and i got the timberwolves job i'll tell you this right now guys speaking of the university of maine because they were in the game i got the timberwolves job there were a lot of different things and factors, but the primary tape that they cited to me that got me the job was the hockey East championship game in '98, which was BC and BC and Maine. I think BC won that game in overtime. Um, maybe not. That might have been the next year, but that was the game that was cited to me as the as the primary factor, the, the one that really impressed them that that got me that job. So that's why one of the reasons I go back. Cause I love the sport, and I go back every year and do the Frozen Four because I love it. But I had no. Ba- I did not grow up with. it because I grew up in New York, so the reason college hockey does not exist in New York, it's amazing to me, there's a game now, a couple of games in Madison Square Garden every year, and that's really cool, but none of that. You saw the one game, you saw the National Championship game on ESPN, with Tom Mee's calling it, and it was like this great curiosity, like what the heck is this? College hockey was a sport, and ESPN started to cover it, the way they covered, you know, the the rodeo, and the karate, and the tractor pulls, and everything else that they covered, in the early days, because they just wanted content, and that's why they, cover the national championship game so it didn't exist when i got to bu in late 80s and just i just fell in love with it and it was the it was the thing and i was lucky to get in the booth you know pretty early um even as a freshman and have some great bu teams and it was just it was it was my love hockey was my love but the college game didn't exist in new york hockey was what i always thought i would end up doing that was what i assumed was going to be my path hockey or baseball
2: and i mean and as as we all know you you know, still break away at, at times to cover through the season um is that something that you'd still want to pursue i mean it, you've done the college but on the pro level i mean is that something i mean still being a pro it's hard to do college uh, college hockey and nba basketball but i mean that's cer- certainly there, you have a passion for that sport that is is obvious um, is that something you still would want to pursue? Or is that because your your schedule right now, it's just too difficult to I, see that? It's
0: funny. I get calls. <laughs> I mean, the first, every year I go to the Frozen Four, and every year Barry Melrose and Cap Rader kind of corner me, and they're like, when are you going to, you know, it was like a running joke for years, like, when are you going to jump to the NHL? What are you, you know, because you love hockey, and everyone was trying to recruit me. Uh, even this year, the day that Howie Rose stepped down from the New York Islanders, I got a ton of calls, I'll tell you right now, and texts and things like that about, Uh, you know, about the Islanders' job and and coming back home to New York. I think it'll always be there. I I think somebody asked me on Twitter, and you guys can find it, um, a couple months ago, there was a point where I I just got tired of answering questions in 140 characters that you can't, so I actually typed, like, a little memo and made that, like, took a picture of it and made that the answer on Twitter, and somebody asked me about, like, what your ambitions are, because they're different when you get to a certain point. And I'd be lying if I said, you know, I'd done everything I wanted to do, um, but it really now, is, is to me, is about working at the with the elite people. These aren't names that you're necessarily going to know. But like maybe you know the names Scott Cockrell and Renardo Lowe because you hear Kevin Harlan or Marv Albert say them when they're signing off. But to me, I grew up worshipping sports television and worshipping the guys that produce it and direct it, the great producers, the great directors, and just being with people in different trucks over the years sporadically Um, that's really what I, you know, and those, those people operate at the, you know, at the elite level, they do NFL games, they do high level college football games and they do. And so that is certainly something that I had wanted to do. And I, you know, you want to be, you want to be the best at what you do. And to do that, you have to work with the best people. So it's, uh, you know, the Celtics has been a labor of, of love, but it's been a, that's been a lifestyle choice, you know, because there is only so much you can do when you're and you're committed to a team. But I also believe the true romance of play-by-play is telling the story of a team from the opening day of training camp to the final playoff game. That is, that is to me, the essence of it. And it's great to do the NFL, and it's great to do the Super Bowl. But to me, the best job in play-by-play, regardless of sport, is following a team from the start of the season to the end.
2: And that's something, particularly when you've had very different Cycles here with with college hockey, and going back to that for a second. I mean, that's something where you get to pick the the, the pinnacle of that season. Yep. You know, the pinnacle of the, the final, the Frozen Four. And, and as Justin said, I mean, two I mean, us being you know UMaine graduates and and having been there when Sean Walsh um, was you know really the king of the sport. Uh, you know, my my senior year was was the year after '99. So, you know, having gone through the 42 1 and 2 season with Korea and Montgomery and those, and the Ferraro brothers, and, and, you know, having seen what college hockey can be, do you think that there is a level? I mean, again, we're, I've heard who's listening probably is a basketball fan, but selfishly as a humane fan and, and as a college hockey fan in general, do you think there is a level where college hockey can ascend to? That maybe isn't going to be college basketball. I, th- I think we all agree that that's that's an unrealistic expectation. But is there a higher level, knowing that we don't have a major juniors uh, situation here in, in the United States, as as hockey grows, and we've seen that really a lot on the local levels here in Maine, is there a higher level, a higher profile for college hockey that that's possible, uh, given you know as these kind of local sports networks? bring up, you know, raise the level of, of or I should say, the, the visibility of these local uh, you know, colleges, certainly in New England, but, but even it's spreading across the Midwest, even South. It seems like college hockey has grown to a great degree since you first started covering, you know, uh, back in the 90s.
0: Well, remember this. In those days, you literally had to, you were writing down rosters and trying to study them. Now, because of all those Fox channels, whatever, there are so many games on TV, which is just great when you're scouting and you can follow the sport. I, always, I believe that there was an opportunity 20 years ago for hockey to be. You know, Jack Parker always thought and always felt that to the NCAA, there was football, there was basketball, and there was everything else. And if you were the biggest of the everything else, as hockey was, you were on the short end of it because you were grouped in with the smallest of the small. So a lot of people wanted to secede take college hockey away from the NCAA and run run it separately. I always felt there was a spot for a third major sport. I always felt hockey was perfect for it, and, of course, it went to women's college basketball for a variety of reasons, and now it gets that treatment as the third of the big three sports, and hockey remains the best of the rest. But, you know, the regionalization obviously hurts it. Um, you know, you're talking to the wrong guy because I have a greater view of college hockey. I believe in this age in which everything is overexposed. I think it's the one thing that is truly underpromoted and underappreciated. appreciated um, To me, what it has always needed and can only really have if ESPN ever wanted to get in the game and do it, and now since the conferences have the separate deals with different stations, it seems impossible. We started to do this with Hockey East my last year, and I fought for it. I got it. Coaches pushed back at me at first at the idea, and eventually it was very rewarding because some of them came to me, including the aforementioned Sean Walsh, whose last game, by the way, I broadcast with Bob Norton in the NCAA tournament in 2001 in Worcester. And there was a commercial break late in the game, and he got kicked out of that game. And Bob Norton and I, who uh, we knew his health. His health was not very public at that time, but we knew it. And Bob Norton and I kind of looked at each other like, did that son of a gun just get kicked out of this la- like the last game of his life? Did he just get kicked? I mean, how Sean Walsh was that? that he was one of the most unique people, by the way. And people <laughs> in Maine love him, and people outside of Maine hated him, but he was great for the game because he loved it and he promoted it, and we needed more people that still do like him within, you know, within college hockey because, hey, did he push the rules? Did he... You know, did he fracture an occasional like Axel Foley? Did he fracture an occasional law, from time to time? You better believe he did. You better believe he did. But there weren't the right system. You know, if the NCAA really cared, there would have been better systems around. You know, to to keep him in check. But anyway, that's a separate. We could do an hour podcast on Sean Walsh another time. But there was, you know, to me, there was always that opportunity for for hockey to, you know, for hockey to grow. And it, to me, it's. Disappointing that it didn't, but it needed two things, This is what I was saying. Number one, it needs, and it's Arizona State finally is playing. But you need Arizona State and UCLA, and you need a Pac-12. You need them to play hockey. Because let me tell you this, you go to a kid in Quebec or Manitoba or Saskatchewan, okay, really good junior A player, is going to be a really good college player, and say, uh, you spent your whole life here in 30 Below Wind Show in Manitoba. How would you like to come play hockey at Arizona State for four years on a full ride? How appealing do you think that sounds? And that's when you start getting to make you know legitimate big time talent is going to come play at those schools, profile schools to play it. Quinnipiac and Rand Pecknold have done an unbelievable job putting their program together. Doesn't help. Doesn't help the game. You can, because when Quinnipiac or RIT or whatever, and Quinnipiac's different because they're a legitimate power, but when like RIT, all these upsets happen and they get the In basketball, when George Mason gets there, it's awesome. When RIT gets there in hockey, it doesn't help us. We need Michigan State, you need Notre Dame, you need as many eyeballs on it as possible. But the thing, and this is the 10-minute answer to your 10-second question, here's the thing it needed and never could really happen. National game of the week on Sunday night. With a full-hour show beforehand that recaps everything that happened around the country, where you make you know Bob Norton, whoever your Dick Vitale is going to be, and you make it that wraparound show, and then you have the one game and it's BUBC, or it's, you know, Minnesota-Wisconsin, or it's a big, you know, it's a big game. Even if it's St. Lawrence-Clarkson, it's like a big rivalry game. And that team, every other school plays Friday, Saturday, and that week, whatever the big game is, they play Saturday, Sunday. We did that in Hockey East my last year because I fought for it to do the game on Sunday night where it would stand alone and people around the country could see it because it would be the only thing on. On Sunday night, football is over. It's January, February. And so that was my idea. to was just one college hockey game because – every college hockey person who was interested would be watching it because it would be the only game on. But the problem is all the conferences have their own TV deal. So, you know, if you had but ESPN doing so- a Sunday night college hockey game, people would watch it.
1: It makes so much sense to educate the audience and build the narrative.
0: Yeah. Yeah, pretty simple. It's one of the things we was dealing with Bellator. As much as I've killed myself because we've done, you know, I signed on to do 16 shows a year, and then Scott Coker, who's the – who's the boss who runs it, he's the Dana White abellator, Bellator, runs the whole thing, and he kind of came through with an evil smile the next week. He's like, I think we're going to do like 22 or 24 next year, you know, uh, which, you know, like I'm already near death anyway trying to manage the schedule. And, but even 24, it's killed me, but it's not enough because we're not – because of the Olympics and whatever, we're on a little high – we can't build any momentum. We, have to, we need to be on every Friday, every other Friday. Something's got to be on spike to build that Friday night audience. You know, we build some momentum, and then we go away for – Five or six weeks. Like UFC, they have so many fighters on there and so many cards. They have, there's a show virtually every week. But we need, you know, we're going to do 22 or 23 shows this year, and that's good, but that's not. Like we did a show two weeks ago, and because of the Olympics and just schedules, we're not back until August 26th. And you kind of lose momentum. And when guys, WWE, if they want to push somebody, he's on TV every week. Our fighters are fighting three times a year. So it's hard to, uh, you know, to build up the personalities.
2: And because it all comes back to the state of Maine here, it's sold it stuff live. Dana White exactly. would be, you know, just another Mainer. Just we have to do that. That's how we do that here.
0: Grew up the town next to me, as a matter See? of fact. There you go. Bellator has run, and I know they have some smaller MMA shows, but like earlier Bellator had actually run in the building in Lewiston, Yeah, where, uh, you know, you had the Ali Lewiston Rematch that building, I guess, still exists. They play they play hockey in there, and yeah, they have they fights there once in
2: a while. They call it the Colosse, mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: sure.
2: You know, given given the fact it's Lewiston, a very fitting name, and and that's yeah, given the yeah. heritage there. Um, yeah, well, let's uh, we've I, I think we, for the one and a half listeners we have that are hockey fans, <laughs> I, I I could keep going on with that as well, but. Um, Let's go to a name that I think a lot of our listeners do know and and someone who you have become friends with over the years. And and just go with, how did you get to know Bill Simmons? Let's go there.
0: It's an interesting story in that Bill was a fan of mine before I knew who he was. Things have slightly reversed. (laughs) The first first time you have that friend, because generally speaking, if you look again, because you're sitting on the Wikipedia page, one of the things about my unique career, you know, bizarre ups and downs, whatever it has been, is that I did a lot of things very young. So among my peer group, I was generally speaking, I, I was the one buying dinner. Let me put it that way. Because, you know, when I was 25 and 26, and I'm in the NBA at 27. and I was at ABC at 20, you know what I mean? So all of a sudden, you know, then like Bill was like the first one to pass me by. And did he ever, pa- I mean, now it's, there's literally billboards and whatever. But he was a fan. he wrote that Digital Underground column, and he used to write about, he'd listen to EI all day, and he'd actually write, you know, he hated the, he hated this, and he hated that, but boy, this Flashboy, this Sean Grandy guy, whatever. And it was so funny, I didn't really, you know, I didn't know who he was. And what's interesting about when I met him, I met him, and I know the exact day and place and where it was, because the night before, on the flight down to Washington DC, which is where we had this lunch in Washington DC on a Monday, the Celtics and Wizards who played a back to back home at home, which is in the Jordan, Michael Jordan Wizards. The night before on the plane, I had my it wasn't a meeting. I had my audience with Red. It was my first year with the Celtics. <clears throat> it's something I think about a lot that I'm obviously I'm gonna be the last one. I'm gonna be the last Celtic broadcaster to ever get the Red sort of, you know, stamp of approval. I had like a fifteen minute meet and greet, I guess, for, you know, kiss the rings and sort of listen to any advice and sort of get that stamp of approval. Jeff Twist brought me to the back of the plane. I remember he was in Washington, so he was flying with us back from Boston. But the next day I met Bill, and we just kind of hit it off, because obviously we're, we're he's a couple years older than me, but we're a similar age, similar experience. We have the sports thing and the wrestling thing and the sports TV thing and whatever, and we just became, I you know, we just kind of had that natural Thing that you would with any friend, and I knew he was talented. I just it was hard to figure out. I say this. I used to say it about Russillo after Simmons. Like you knew Bill was going to be big, but you didn't know at what because it didn't exist yet. And the thing is, he went and created it. Like he invent, he moved the game. He literally moved the game because they wouldn't let him play on the field as it was. And he, you know, he just uh, he moved it. And obviously, I ended up, you know, when I became the the voice of one of his childhood teams, and that sort of helped it out and I see him now it's hard I'm not I'm not a you know we don't text every day because he's now he's become Bill Simmons multi whatever and we text from time to time and we'll talk about the Celtics and we'll talk about life but I don't you know now that he's become so big and so everything when all the chaos happened with the ESPN last year it's like you know we can talk about that and he knows we can talk about it but it's not like he doesn't have 100 people in his face all the time. And, I, you know, I get it. He's in that phase in his life where he has to, not to mention having kids and whatever, like this is this is his time. So it's, it's rare in this business, in any capacity of it, where someone who you feel is really deserving of success from a talent standpoint and being a good human being standpoint. And so it makes me happy to see my friend do so well.
1: You know, you've mentioned your your 4-year-old son a couple of times on on the interview and as we kind of get close to wrapping it up, you know, maybe maybe tell us a little bit about how fatherhood has has sort of changed your perspective on the world. I mean, John and I are both parents and you talk a lot about your career in the early days when that was something that you could almost focus on singularly, right? Yeah. And and now you have different responsibilities and you talked about time management as a theme quite a bit on this on this uh interview as well and you know talk a little bit about that because i am sure there are many people that listen to the show that are parents themselves and and struggle with that that balance of time management and still doing the things you love i mean even to the point where i took a four-year hiatus from celtic stuff live you know to uh to start a new career and and make sure i didn't ignore my family so
0: maybe talk about that a little bit i think it'll appeal to the audience well, you know, I think it's, it's like everything in life. It's a work in progress, and you know? I haven't made a final decision as to how, to how to manage everything. You do the best you can, and it was something that was not necessarily something I had planned in my life I thought was going to happen, and when it did, it's obviously, as any parent will tell you, it's been the greatest thing. I am not, if you are not a parent, by the way, do not let parents tell you you don't get it or you don't understand something because you're not a parent. I was older when I became a parent. I was someone who thought that I wasn't going to be. So I instinctively, I couldn't op- openly reject that notion because I wasn't a parent. But it is basically everything that you think it is. It's just you're actually on the roll. When Brad Stevens, see how I tie this together? There, I remember running, Brad Stevens to get off the bus. <laughs> we're in L.A. It's the first year. It's 2 in the morning. He just got hammered in Denver You know, by 30 or whatever. And I just saw the expression on his face. And, you know, Brad and I have become what Brad and I have become. And uh, it's that was a very strange dynamic for me, by the way. We're talking about getting old and older. Having a younger coach, having a coach who's younger than I am, was really an adjustment at first because I had the dynamic with Jim O'Brien. And I certainly had the dynamic with Doc for nine years and the way we did things. And it took me a while to sort of figure out that now, now I'm the older brother, you know, on the air and off the air. It took me a while to kind of like acknowledge that and accept that uh, on a couple levels but it's like a I, rite of passage it really is uh, uh, everyone yeah this is the first time there's a player younger than you i remember when lawrence frank became a coach and it was the first time there was a coach that was your it's like all these things that just make your back hurt instinctively like you just you know want to get fitted for a, a truss or something or have your prostate examined when they happen uh so i you know brad had just got you that know, it was just a bad run you know that team had the 10 and 12 and 14 starts so it didn't seem like it was going to be that bad and then everybody went away and it was like you know 11 and 40 after that it was brutal and we get to LA and I just saw the expression on his face and I said you knew what you were you know you knew what you were doing you knew what you were signing up for and he's like yeah but you know when you're actually doing it and I said yeah it's like parents it's like parenting or getting on the roller coaster you know you're not going to sleep you know it's going, it's going, it's everything that people say it is it's everything you know intellectually it's going to be when you're not a parent, but now you're actually on the roller coaster. So now you're actually feeling it. You're feeling the physical things that come with it. Um, but it, you know, it is, it is what people say. It is. And the highs are higher and the lows are lower. And you couldn't imagine you'd love anything the way you love it. It's absolutely true. There's a great speech that Aaron Sorkin wrote for the West Wing, for the Toby Ziegler character when he's about to become a father. And he's worried... Because that he's not going to love his kids the way other people do, and that he wants the things that are important to him to stay important, he likes being good at his job, and obviously, as you guys know, all joking and kidding and heel persona aside, excelling at my job is something that's defined my life that is it's been that's very important to me i can't I don't control whether I'm doing the n f l or whatever, but I want people to say. It, you know what, man, he's a jerk. I, when he's on with those guys, those guys are so nice to him on the podcast, but he's such a loudmouth jerk. I can't stand it. But you know what, Dan, that son of a gun can call a game. Like that's fine with me. All that's cool. But, you know, when you have, there's a reason you do It's like, when I took on this other job, there were other factors too, you know, in life that I had to take on this other job. And I put myself through hell last year, doing the two jobs at the same time and doing other freelance work. But, When you say, yeah, my son's going to a better school now, it's like there's a reason to get on that extra plane. There's a reason to do that, you know, beyond being good at it or the challenge that comes with it. And, it's uh, you know, it's pretty amazing when they start walking and they start talking and they start, you know, Watching Celtic games on there, and I tried very hard not to push sports on him because it's you know he's going to be around it all the time. Oh, but work. he's been to the Mets games, has he not? Yeah, I took him to a Mets game last week, and I have I have some great pictures of uh, you know I brought him in to one of the last games of the year that Charlotte game, and you know he sits there and he puts the headphones on, and he you know meets Tommy Heinsohn, and um, you know he walks around. The first time he was a baby, he's walking around TD Garden. He, he loves steps. So there were a whole, it was a whole building full of steps and the biggest TV screen in the world. So why would it not be the coolest place <laughs> for a two-year-old to crawl around?
2: You know, I've had him on the plane
0: uh, down to New York. You know, we've been on the Celtics team plane. you know, and there's like little pictures of him in the cockpit. And um, So I'm really looking forward to him being old enough where he could really travel with me to some of these games. You know, he's too young now that, you know, he, needs to, he still needs that sort of constant you know, attention. But when he gets older, if he becomes 10% of the sports fan I was, you know, I'm going to end up being a cool dad for a little while, you know, because of my job. Because I never had any of that. I I was the kid, you know, I'd buy the cheap seats in the ballpark and my friends and I, we would scout out the good seats at Shea for four or five innings and nobody was sitting in them. And then you eventually you try to sneak in there and the usher, would, and you knew later, like if you had money to give the usher, he would have let you stay. But who had that money? You know, so... I tell people that's why I went into this in the first place cuz I couldn't, you know, I I couldn't afford these seats. Then they ended up moving the seats, you know, so maybe I could have, but who knew?
1: Well, I have no doubts you're a cool dad. I mean, come on. Every kid likes a bedtime story, and as we talked about already, you're an amazing storyteller. So I can only imagine uh, how creative you get uh, telling stories to your boy.
0: So let me tell you about the time I had to break up a fight between two Celtics on the bus. We were pulling yeah. into the Lincoln Tunnel. <laughs> Wait, hold on. <laughs> is that a true story? It is. I'm trying to figure oh, out when the statute of limitations has gone by. to win. That's the fun part of it. Like, I'll tell you, like, there was a trade. I'll tell you one that I remember sort of revealing. And I was, it was on Bill Simmons. It was on Bill's podcast. And it was something that I knew. And It's now become part of, you know, everyone's got a different version of it. But in the 24-48 hours before the Kendrick Perkins trade, that was going to be James Harden, not Jeff Green. And that was the belief of certain people. Now, I talked to Sam Presti five years later. I talked to Sam Presti about it last year. And, of course, his version of the story is a little bit different. But there were people, significant people in the organization, who were under the impression for 24 hours that it was going to be James Harden, not Jeff Green, that was coming. There are little things like that. There was a trade in 2009 that the Celtics had discussed. Oh, man, that's disappointing, right? Uh Yeah, yeah. There were in 2009. There was a, there was a deal on the table. Listen, when all this Ray Allen stuff and all this Ray Allen, there were some real Ray Allen trades. There was a significant Ray Allen trade on the table with Houston um, in 2009 that would have brought Tracy McGrady to Boston for maybe 2010. I'm not sure for Ray. And that, you know there are things that I know about because there were you know it was there are people in the organization whose names you would know. Would say what do you think? And it's not like me or. Max or Mike, you know, or Tommy or are making decisions for the organization, but obviously we get asked from time to time. So we know because for two reasons. One, we have a you know, we have an opinion that has some value to it. And number two, they know we're not gonna tweet out you know, like I said, if I could tweet the things that I really knew, i number one I wouldn't want to, but be a whole different ball game. Be like, Hey, Doc Rivers just told me that the, the Celtics are gonna trade for the You know, one day we'll talk about how fed up the Celtics were with Rondo in 2009, I guess it was, 2009. I mean, there were some names that the Celtics were looking at trading Rondo away for that, you know, would been appalling. But things happen. You just you have to kind of go through. This is part of, like, going through a season. So if there comes a time you become so frustrated with your own player that you want to trade him for this guy. It's, it comes and it goes. I'm just gonna, well, step back to I'm, I'm
1: still digesting the James Harden factor.
0: Well, that's not a new – I mean, you can go that's back and look at that me. because it's – I talked about it on Bill – the day after um, the season, I remember doing the, doing the BS report, and we kind of got into that, that issue. That Listen, I mean, Sam Presti isn't going to tell you now, oh, yeah, it was Harden and then everything – but, you know, there was an element of bait and switch to it. There was an element of, you know, what are people told – what are Danny and Sam Presti really talking about versus what are they telling their head coach? You know, their head coaches. Like, what is Sam Presti telling Scott Brooks? Is that a hundred percent true? So, you know, everything is a. It's the famous um Odin or Durant. You know, Danny maintains full deniability. That.
1: He, yeah, nobody knows because he didn't get to. Do we it.
0: don't because it, we don't actually know what would have happened. There are, you know, did was there a Celtics team doctor that said, "Don't draft that guy"? Talking about Odin? Yes, but what's the 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 pressure to draft Odin from the organization, from the fans, from the owners? If that had played out, I mean, that would have been enormous. So you never really who knows. And that's the kind of thing you don't. Well,
1: John I, will tell you my pick was was Durant, and his was Odin, and he'll maintain that if if healthy, Odin was still the choice. But we'll never. That's another. That's another plausible deniability scenario because he wasn't healthy and we'll never know what he
0: could have been in the alternate universe. Unless you were the Spurs or some team that got a fluke, that got the number one pick as a fluke that year, you had to take Odin. Because that's what the game was. And even now, and forget the injury situation, you now also have the game the, the way the game is played now. Versus but Danny
1: was always shifting in this direction. I mean there was always looks- this focus on a long long and tall small forward who can shoot the ball and spread the floor so there are and he was he was looking for that earlier than many others so there's some there is some some facts or some signs that say that, that Danny might have been ballsy enough to. Do I, it. Think, and and I think, and I think he was far more than conflicted than
0: him. he was far more conflicted than other people would have been. Who knows yeah. how the listen? If you want to redo the 2007 draft and the sellers get the number one pick? Maybe they trade it for the number two. You know what I'm saying? Like, maybe they would have traded down. And let's see, that'll take Odin. And you know what I'm saying? That who knows how it would have played when push comes to shove. But yeah. I, remember, I know the coaching staff was relieved when the draft pick came out because if it had been Odin or Durant, forgotten part of history, Durant was awful the first couple of years. He was terrible. Shaky offensive player, brutal defensive player. How bad would the Celtics have been? Remember, because no, none of that happened. The, the shift towards being a good team doesn't happen if the Celtics, you know, eventually it would have, but not if the Celtics picked number one and number two that year. Everything obviously is a different story and there was the you know, the chance to do the Ray Allen thing and the chance to do the Kevin Garner thing and and go from there.
1: Well, yeah, there might not have been a championship. Sean, listen, you've you've been a great guest as always. i I appreciate you covering a wide variety of topics with us today.
0: Spanning the globe.
1: That was yeah, a great, quite quite literally. One <laughs> of my one up, of my favorite
0: things a very sad occasion, but one of the things I got to do and you're talking about the openings of the show, which I now only do obviously on special occasions, but uh, Jim McKay died before Game 2 of the Finals in 2008. He died between Game 1 Game 2 was a Sunday night. He had died on the Friday of the Saturday. And because I did those things, my Game 2 open was about Jim McKay. And this is how rewarding things can be years later. Um, it was something I was always very proud of, and I was very much into, you know, like I wrote about how the last game before my father died, the last basketball game we ever watched, was game seven in 84 with the Celtics and Lakers. And the star of that game, of course, was the guy that was going to sit next to me that night calling game two of the finals, you know, and Cedric Maxwell, and how Jim McKay probably would have known that story because he was the master storyteller of all time. About a year ago, somebody sent it to me. And I've, you know, I know people at CBS now, and I know people who are close to certain people. And I asked if Sean McManus would be interested in, seeing it I'd send it to you know someone who works at at CBS at a fairly high level and I said I don't I'm not going to send it to you know if you think he would like to have it please give it to him um because I know if somebody wrote that about and I was like "Eh," it's kind of like a kiss-ass thing to do so I didn't want to do it and he was like somebody wrote that about your father you'd want it and I said okay and I didn't think anything of it and a few days later I got this wonderful note from Sean McManus about how much he appreciated it when I it was going in the jim mckay family archives and whatever and that's what this job gives you the opportunity to do sometimes if you do it long enough and you're talking about storytelling you get a chance to honor the great storytellers and do what they did for you as a kid and you know maybe one day someone will there'll be a a great broadcaster that comes up 10 years from now 15 years from now and maybe you'll be a great storyteller and maybe you'll say yeah i used to listen to that grandy guy and as so much of a hack as he was, I did take some of that storytelling. As much as a jerk as he was on those podcasts, in real life, all full of himself or whatever. And that's that's really what it's all about. Because I, I think about the guys that I listened to when I was a kid. And, you know, it's it's been pretty cool getting to do it.
1: Well, you definitely are going to have a legacy, Sean. I mean, come on. Just... Just look at it, you know i 'd be very surprised if you didn 't wind up in the Hall of fame i mean you' only you 're one of three people to have called a thousand nBA games, I believe before the age of forty. Uh, you have quite a resume. We really did go around the world with it today, and um, you know I think we got i think the listeners got a real opportunity to kind of see a big picture from somebody that they listen to on a regular basis, not only on this show but obviously. You know, on the broadcast on a regular basis. And, you know, the NBA app has been great for that. I'll tell you, I, I travel not quite as much as you, but I do travel quite frequently. And a lot of times I have to be, you know, in a car when the games are going or for the first half, you know, and uh, thanks to the NBA app, I always get a chance to listen to the team, and I and I always feel like I know exactly what's happening on the floor because of your ability to uh, keep Maxwell in check and also uh, bring the game to us and uh, make sure that that I can visualize what's happening on the floor without actually being able to see it.
0: Well, Max is the guy you owe because he's the one who called me up because I turned this job down three times in two thousand one. It was Max who called my house in July of two thousand one and said, "I really think we could do this. I think we'd be really good together." whenever. and so. You have him to blame for all this. Him to blame or thank, right?
1: All right, Sean, have a great day. Thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, you know, keep listening to our shows. I know you enjoyed the the flashback show, so there'll be more of those. Uh, We have a. We had an interview with Earl Lloyd many years ago, and uh, we're going to be reissuing that leading up into training camp as well as we round out this summer interview, off-season interview series. So appreciate you being uh, here to help us kick it off.
0: Can I uh, go back to being like the, the jerk bad guy next time? Absolutely. Okay.
2: Cool. Absolutely. Wouldn't have it any other way.
0: Because this is all just, I was all just—I was just—this was just a joke. I was playing on you the whole time. I was playing well, on you this whole time. Today you're number one, but when you come back on the show again, you'll be number two. Excellent.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right, Sean. Have an awesome day. Thank you again. So all right, guys. Much. Thanks, Sean. All right, everybody. Sean Grandy, play-by-play voice of the Boston Celtics, good friend of the show. It's always great to have Sean on, and I do love his, I guess, character – On Celtic Stuff Live. Um, I do have to uh, just promote real quick that the interview brought to you by one of our sponsors, Loot Crate, which is another monthly subscription box service, only this one's for geeks, nerds, comic book lovers, and pop culture aficionados. For less than $20 a month, subscribers receive a mystery box containing at least $45 worth of collectibles, figurines, apparel, and memorabilia. So from bad guys doing good things for the wrong reason to, to good guys. Guys, with questionable tactics, August is the perfect time to explore the anti-hero, which that's really what Grandy's trying to be on our show, right, John? He's like the anti-hero.
2: He is the anti-hero, for sure.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Flashboy the anti-hero. Walk the hero villain line with this one hundred percent exclusive collection of items from DC Comics, Archer, Dark Horse, and Kill Bill that includes two great collectibles, a wearable, and of course the monthly tee. And don't forget the pin. Just head on over to LukeCrate.com backslash CLNS and enter the code CLNS to save three dollars on any new subscription. I mean, can we call him Flashboy? he's gonna go back to being number two and he's gonna come on and, and play the antagonistic role, the anti hero. I mean, can't his nickname be Flashboy moving forward?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That 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 might be uh, you know Poking the barrel. That little might bit be too? a little bit a little bit too much. I think number two just really gets him where where he lives though. I think that I, I think that's the one we've got we gotta hold on to.
1: I love the man, and uh, he always gives us incredible stuff. The Harden thing definitely interesting. I can't wait until the statute of limitations is removed on the fight that he broke up between two Celtics players. That is an interesting story. I can't wait to be able
2: to explore in the future. We'll have to. I don't know when if we can put a timer on that, but I certainly would love to see uh, try to figure out what that is as well. Boy, wow.
1: Now why didn't we appeal to him to get your Bill Simmons ban lifted off Twitter?
2: This is a good point. I There's an opportunity, man. Listen. I, I I wear it as a badge of honor right now, so uh, while I, I while I appreciate the attempt to try to get me um the black pulled off his blacklist, um I, I frankly I, I find it quite uh I I'm quite proud of <laughs> that honor, uh, as you can tell. Bill and I don't always see things from, you know, from the same perspective. So that's okay. I'm, I'm good with it. I'm good with where I, where I am with Bill Simmons right now.
1: (laughs) Well, I did say that we would give out our fan essentials winner for this week for a free month of Celtics gear from fan essentials. So Kurt Jones at curtain call, you are this week's winner. And, uh, I did say we'd be back with with another winner and chicken dinner at the end of the last show, yeah. and that's certainly the case. But I will tell you, we we don't pick the winners at random, folks. And Kurt did a great job of uh, engaging us and retweeting with the hashtag fan essentials last week, and so that's our that's our goal to create discussion and uh, interact with our listeners on Twitter. So great job, Kurt. You are this week's winner. There'll be a direct message to you um, on Monday, the date of this broadcast, for for you to, to be able to collect your free month of Celtics gear. So thanks for being a loyal listener and retweeting the show announcement and supporting Fan Essentials. John, I, I'm really excited about this off-season interview series. I know we're going to wrap here in a minute. Um, we're going to have to uh, be lining up a number of interviews coming up. But it'll obviously include many of the favorites and many of the, the um, guests that have supported Celtic Stuff Live over our 10-plus years in existence. But, but really no better way to kick it off than with Grandy.
2: Grandy, he, he, he helped bring us back uh from the dead here uh this this past spring as c s l was resurrected and uh there's as you said there's no better way to kick it off with than with sean and and as there's a as someone who has first of all if you have your own wikipedia page first of all. You know that there's plenty to talk about, but but Sean's as as I think we we talked about, he's done a lot of different things. He's got a lot of perspectives on things that certainly make you think. Um, maybe you agree, maybe you don't, but but at least uh, you know, he's he's got a great perspective on it and uh, we've we've loved have him on the show and, and certainly can't wait to do it again to talk about what's going on with the team. But we'll do that. When there's actually things happening with the team right now, do we do
1: we hold it against him that he's a Mets fan?
2: Absolutely. I That's, mean, we have. No, to. I think the Jets, the Jets thing is the, by far the most objectionable thing of that list. You
1: did see him kind of back away from that, though. Oh, we it was did. More like the olden days. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> no, he knew. You know, you, know, you can you can tell he he very rarely talks about his his New York upbringing. He knows where his bread is buttered right now. And uh, for a lot of Celtics fans, those four teams are persona non grata, especially the New York Jets.
1: Well, I'm definitely going to be watching some Bellator MMA because I do want to see this man, uh, you know, apply his craft. I mean, it's I, I know Bellator is still a sport sport, but it's really different than the other major sports that he's been covering um I just see it as as such an interesting outlet and it it really could be his John Travolta moment in pulp fiction where and you know I think the parallels are you know, it's not just the fact that Travolta reinvented himself. He reinvented himself in a violent movie. And so that's how I, that's how I really drew the the connection is. All right. So, you know, there's this bad boy image that Sean is comfortable playing on our show, but I think, I think there's an edge to Grandy that needs to come out. And I think that, that MMA is a perfect place for Sean to play that out. And I I would be if this if this run goes five to ten years, I'd be very interested to see how his own personal character develops in that environment. So it's something to keep an eye on
2: uh, yeah, no question he's he's uh, he's an interesting fellow and uh, I, I think we've all been uh, uh, I hope we all appreciate um, you know what we've what we've been able to witness with him here uh, as as the play by play voice of our Boston Celtics. Well, if you just think about his
1: appreciation for WWE, which is longstanding, he's he has definitely loved wrestling his whole life. He references it all the time. But the announcers in wrestling became part of the entire package, the drama, the story. And and I can just see himself bringing that influence and shaping MMA in that way. But um, we'll wrap on that. It's been a great show. Again, thank you to everybody who listen. The broadcast is going to be available on demand on the CLNS Radio mobile app as well as radio.com Don't forget to be following us on Twitter. I'm at CSL underscore Justin. My co-host here at CSL underscore Duke. Big thanks to everybody for tuning in. And a reminder, you can help support the show by subscribing to Celtic Stuff Live on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to rate and review the show because we want to know what you're thinking. And a reminder that today's show is Brought to you by Loot Crate and Fan Essentials. They've got great deals for all of you listeners. But most importantly, you'd be supporting Celtic Stuff Live and the entire CLNS Radio Network. Go to fanessentials.com. Use the promo code CSL2016 at checkout to save 30% on your first month subscription. And a big thanks to the entire loyal CLNS Radio audience who makes it all worthwhile. For staff writer Eddie Santiago, program director Larry H. Russell. The founder of CNS Radio, Nick Gelso, and my co-host John Duke. I'm Justin Poolin. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Celtic Stuff Live.
2: Celtic Stuff Live.